James 5. We've uh, come to the end of this little epistle, regretfully. One of the things that you, uh, that you learn as you get older <coughs> is that life uh, certainly uh, has its ups and downs, uh, alternates of weal and woe, good times, bad times, prosperity, adversity. Seems that sometimes we have more than our fair share of uh, adversity, but uh, nevertheless, there are also those those good times. Uh, life is very unpredictable. In fact, I've come to believe that the only thing predictable about life is that it's very unpredictable. You uh, never know what's going to happen next, and it seems that this is what James has in mind when he writes in verse thirteen. Is I'm in chapter five, verse thirteen. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. The word for suffering here means to uh, receive blows. Uh, is anyone battered here this morning? Are you are you you feel beaten down? Uh, has life been hard and harsh and and adverse for you this past week? Then James says, uh, pray. Is uh, is your life going well? Are you cheerful? Are you full of vim, vigor, and vitality this morning? Then uh, James says, pray, sing praises, because praise is simply another manifestation of prayer. It seems to me that what James is saying is that uh, despite all the alternations of life, there is one constant factor in the universe you can count upon, and that's God. He never changes. We, we change. Our circumstances change. We one day feel very good. The other day we feel moody and out of sorts. Uh, one day things go well with our children, the next day they don't. One day our marriage is uh, going very well, and the next day we're struggling. But uh, God never changes. He's always the same. As we learned from, uh, from James earlier, he is uh, the God who is the source of light. He's the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness. That is, he doesn't alternate as the sun does between periods of... Uh, of light and periods of dark. Nor is he ever eclipsed or shadowed. He's constant light. He's constant good. He's always the same. He never changes. My father used to tell me a, a, the story of a, of a soloist who went in to talk to his music teacher, his voice teacher. And as he walked in the door, he said, tell me what's the good word for today. And the music teacher got the tuning fork and struck it with a hammer, and he said, that's A. He, he says, the, the soprano sharps upstairs on her high notes, and the baritone down the hall flats on his low notes, but, and he hit the tuning fork again, that's A. And that's the good news for today. There's that, that one constant. I've been reading Shell's book on the fate of the uh, earth. Someone very kindly sent it to me from BSU this, this past week, and he points out that our whole uh, view of physics has changed as a result of the atomic age prior to the, the detonation of the first atomic bomb. Newtonian physics satisfactorily answered most of the questions that we had about the universe, but with the advent of, of uh, uh, subatomic uh, Science and with an understanding of the enormity of the world, Newtonian physics just doesn't work well anymore. And now there's a, another set of laws by which men try to understand the, the world. 
And it struck me that that's, that's always uh, true. It, it seems to me that the more we grow, the more we need something constant to, to cling to, and the more the constants, the absolutes that we've believed in the past need to be uh, rethought. Um, your children probably think that the most constant thing in the world is the fact that Sesame Street comes on at 4 o'clock every afternoon, or whenever it comes on. Now, I haven't watched it for years, but <laughs> it used to be my favorite program. You know, Big Bird is always there. Sesame Street is always on it. It's predictable, but then you discover after a while that things change. And uh, so it is with us. The, the things that we have believed in tend to shift and, and change and alter. But one thing is constant. God never changes. As Hebrews puts it, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. His truth is always the same. And that's what gives us stability. When everything is shifting, when all the old institutions, all of the, uh, the, the, the constructs on which our society is based begin to get shaky and, and fall apart, the one thing that we can count on is God, his faithfulness, his unchangeable character. Well, James uh, goes on to mention another uh, variable in our life. Is anyone sick? The word means uh, weak. He's probably thinking of some long-term debilitating disease, not uh, some minor uh, disability like a cold or a sprained ankle, but some chronic or long-term disorder, physical disorder. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it didn't rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Um, in all fairness, I have to say this is a very, very difficult passage, and uh, it's variously understood by commentators. And uh, I have come to the conclusion, after studying this passage extensively, that I don't really have any idea what this passage means. Um, I, there are two possibilities. I, the problem is I have written a book on James, and I've come out in print on this uh, <laughs> This chapter, and uh, it's embarrassing to change your mind after you have, uh, after you have uh, gone public with an interpretation. Nevertheless, I, uh, I'm shifting my thinking somewhat, or at least I'm not as certain of my uh, interpretation of this passage as I was uh, formerly. There are a couple of, couple of possibilities that I want to mention to you, and neither of which uh, we can be absolutely certain about. This passage raises a lot of questions, a lot of questions. If you're a thoughtful person at all and you read through this passage, it it raises more questions than it answers. 
perhaps the first question that comes to mind is is the the matter of prayer and how prayer works. Because if you read this passage and take it take it at fa- face value, it seems to promise that if you're sick, all you have to do is call the elders of the church, and they'll they'll come to your sick bed and lay hands on you. And uh, anoint you with oil, which is a, a symbol of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, and pray for you, and you will be healed. It, it appears to be an unequivocal promise. Now that raises all sorts of, of problems. Uh, if we if we think logically about this passage, it implies that no one ever need be sick, at least not for very long. And uh, as a matter of fact, no one should die because that, of course, is what causes death. We don't just wear out. We usually, uh, as we get older, our, our, um, our tolerance for disease is lowered and we contract some, some disease and we die. And so all we have to do is call for the elders and presumably they are righteous people and they're people of faith and they will pray for you and you will never again be sick, right? It just doesn't seem to accord with the facts. In all the history of the world, there have only been two people that have not died. Enoch and and Elijah both were translated. And certainly there was no scarcity of righteous uh, men and women and and men and women who had faith. So apparently there's something wrong with this passage or there is something wrong with their understanding of this passage. And then you have the illustration of this fellow Elijah who had the power to control the elements of nature. He prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half months and and then he prayed and it rained. And you think, now, he'd certainly be a handy fellow to have along if if you're planning a picnic. (laughs) Or you're a farmer and it's a period of drought. You'd hire Elijah and he'd pray for you. Or uh, you could hire someone like Elijah to uh, go through the halls of St. Al's and St. Luke's and pray for all the people and, and they'd all be discharged. Because the passage seems to imply that uh, that all, all one has to do is pray in faith and that prayer would, will be heard. Now, is that really what James means? Well, Elijah is a good example, I think, of, of what James wants us to understand by believing prayer. Because if you go back to 1 Kings 17 and, and 18 and read the story, you'll discover that God revealed to Elijah his will. When Elijah was by the brook Cherith, God said to Elijah, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. So Elijah prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years, and he presented himself before King Ahab, announced that it would not. After three and a half years, God said, now it's going to rain, and and Elijah prayed, and it rained. And that's an example of, of believing prayer. Prayer is not the means by which we change God's mind about the forces of nature and the affairs of history and of our individual lives. Nor is it the means by which we conform his will to ours. But it's the means by which our wills are conformed to his. That's what James means by believing prayer. Just stop and think for a moment. If if um, if prayer is the means by which we get what we want, uh, God would really have nothing to do in this universe except respond to our needs. We would be controlling the universe. We would determine when it rained and when it didn't rain, and who became sick and who was well, and who was raised uh, up from their sick bed, and and so forth. 
And we know that can't be so. God is sovereign. He rules the universe. We cannot change his mind by prayer. Prayer is not the means by which we control God. It's the means by which he he moves us in line with his will. The, The theme of prayer is your will be done. Jesus taught us that in the pattern prayer. Uh, the the so-called Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And then he exemplified that prayer himself in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Lord, if it be your will, I want to avoid the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's the way we have to pray. Lord, this is what I desire. This is what I long for. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And where God has promised, where there are clear, unequivocal promises in in Scripture, we can pray with real authority. Most of the prayers are are the promises that seem to be carte blanches that just uh, indicate that you can pray for anything and receive are in the context of receiving things that God has already promised that we'll have. For example, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, uh, Ask and you shall receive. Uh, Seek and you shall, shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And we say, well, that's a, that's a wide open door. Just ask for anything and God will, will give it to you. Isn't that what Jesus is promising? But if you go on and read, he says, If, if you being evil know how to give good, good gifts to your children, if, if your child asks you for a piece of bread, will you give him a rock? Jesus said, if he asks you for a fish... Will you give him a snake? No, that's not kosher. You you wouldn't do that. If then your father, if then you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask? And in context, the good things are the things which he uh, has mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount as characteristic of of the citizens of the kingdom. That is the character of God's sons. Those are the good things. And it's much more apparent from, from Luke's account of the same passage. He's talking about character. So when he says, seek and you shall find, ask and it shall be given, he's talking about the acquisition of godly character. Now, he's not promising that if we pray for love, we'll be a loving person for the rest of our life. But he is promising that he will respond to the needs of the moment and he will consistently build into our character those, uh, those qualities that we hunger and, and seek for. The same thing is true in John fifteen five. Whatever you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. But it's, it's preceded by the statement, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. That's praying in line with God's promises. And again, in context, the, 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 the theme of, of John 15, as you know, is fruit bearing. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. Do you, do you want to bring forth much fruit, Jesus says, and ask for it? Do you need love? Ask for it. Do you need patience? Ask for it. Do you need uh, courage? Ask for it and, and receive. Prayer operates mainly along, along those lines. Where God has revealed his will, we can, we can pray boldly. Where he is not, we have to say, Lord, not my will, but, but yours be done. Now, it may be that that's what James is talking about here though it seems to be an absolute promise. He's saying, by, by describing this prayer as a prayer of faith, it's prayer in line with the will of God. If you're sick, 
call for the elders of the church because they represent the rest of the body and they come and pray for you in faith, that is, according to God's word and in his name, uh, according to his will. And if it's God's will, you, you'll be raised up. That's one possibility. There, there's another large question that loomed in my mind as I read through this passage. It's, it's the connection between sin and, and suffering. It, if you'll notice, it says in verse 15, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, that this is a conditional clause. It suggests he may not have, have committed sin, but the uh, uh, James uses a peculiar form. It's only found one other place in the New Testament, uh, an unusual construction of words that implies a high degree of probability and the idea that these sins have gripped the person, that they have become habitual, that, that they are still in control of his life. And, and James says, if this is so, if these sins have, uh, have, such, have tyrannized us to the point that we cannot get free, then we will be forgiven. And he seems to connect our, our sickness with that sin. And then if you notice in verse 16, he, he draws the conclusion that we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one, one another so that you may be healed. His conclusion is that if we keep short accounts, if we confess sin to one another and we pray for one another, we will be in a state of healing. The verb implies a, a state of being rather than a, a mere once-for-all act. So there seems to be a close connection between uh, sin and sickness, which raises the other question. What, what causes sickness? Is there a direct link between our sin and, and physical affliction? Yes, there is. It's taught all the way through Scripture. In the first place, uh, sin is the result of the sin of, of the human race. We, we, we live in a fallen race. Adam did it to us. When, when Adam sinned and fell, he plunged the whole race into ruin. And, and Adam died and, and we die. Paul puts it this way, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed through the human race in that all have sinned. In other words, the, the way to know that everybody is a sinner is to observe the fact that everybody dies. Sickness and death are the consequence of sin in the race. Now, not all sickness is the direct result of personal sin. In other words, there's not a direct cause and effect relationship between all sin and sickness. It's, I can't uh, attribute my sickness necessarily to some specific sin that I commit. There are examples of that, uh, of that idea in, in the New Testament. There's the story that John tells in John 9 of the man who was born blind and, and Jesus and the disciples as they walked by noted the man and the disciples said, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be blind? And Jesus said, neither. It's, um, it's so God can be glorified. Normally the, the gift of sight is given at birth and God is glorified by that gift. Have you ever thought about that? The, the, the marvels, the, the, the marvelous intricacy of the, of the human eye and our capacity to, to see is a gift of God that displays his, his, uh, his character and his majesty. 
That's not a right that we have. That's a privilege that's bestowed upon us by God. And normally that gift is given to us at birth. And for some reason, God delayed the giving of that gift to this man until later in life. And then he bestowed the gift so that God could be glorified and his name praised. And Jesus makes it very clear that it wasn't uh, this man's sin or something his parents did that caused him to be, to be born blind. God had another purpose in, uh, in causing what, or allowing what appeared to be a, a great misfortune. But it is true that some sin will make you sick and it will kill you. Again, there is ample evidence in, in, the, in the scriptures that that's true. The uh, law in the Old Testament indicates that certain uh, sins persisted in would result in untimely uh, death and, and disease. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says of, of those in the city of Corinth who were abusing the Lord's table, some among you are, are sick and some even sleep. Some had died because of the, the gross... Uh, uh, misuse of, of their fellowship around the, the Lord's table. And you, you may remember the story of, of the man at the pool of Bethesda whom Jesus cured. And, and after he was healed, Jesus found him in the streets of Jerusalem. And he said, don't keep on sinning lest a worse thing befall you. So it, it, it's very clear that specific sins can create a specific sickness. Now, the question is, what sins will make you sick? Those I want to avoid. Uh, back in the third century, uh, one of the Greek fathers, his name was Origen, uh, speculated that certain sins and are much more serious than others, and they came over into Christian thought as the seven deadly sins. Everyone has heard of the seven deadly sins. Uh, actually, there is no sin which in itself is deadly. We're inclined to think that uh, adultery must be one of the seven deadly, well, it is one of the seven deadly sins, but it must be a sin that would eventually kill you, or uh, murder certainly is a sin that would, uh, that would uh, result in sickness and death. But it's not any specific sin. It's any sin persisted in. That, that's, that's the uh, clear teaching of the New Testament. Any sin persisted in over a long period of time, a sin that's unjudged, a sin that we're un unwilling to face and, and put away, it can very well make you sick. It can even kill you. It can be the sin of jealousy. It can be uh, the sin of, uh, of unforgiveness. Uh, it can be uh, pride, self-righteousness. It could be murder or adultery or some other sin. But, but any... Any act of rebellion persisted in will make you sick and can kill you. And it seems to me that that's what James is talking about here. Now, I'm not certain, but I'm almost certain that here in chapter 5, he's not talking about sickness in general, but uh, uh, a sickness that is the result of sin. The reasons I've cited further, he, there's a close connection here between sin and sickness. And his conclusion is that if you confess your sins to one, one another, you'll, you'll stay uh, much more healthy. I think he's talking about a, a sin that we've clung to over the years and have been unwilling to put away. And uh, it, it, it's put us in bed. 
They just made us sick. In such a case, James says, call the elders of the church, and they, they will come representing the rest of the body and pray for that individual. And assuming that they're willing to repent of their sin and turn from it, their sins will be forgiven and they will be healed. And uh, it just seems to me that that's, that's James' uh, emphasis here in this passage. Now, you're probably asking yourself, is that why I have such a bad cold? And uh, is, is that why I'm, you know, I have some physical problem that they haven't been able to diagnose and, and cure? Well, I don't know. It could well be. But I know this. If we are sick because of sin, we know what that sin is. Uh, the, the Spirit of God is always very, very specific. These free-floating uh, feelings of anxiety and guilt do not come from God. They come from Satan. Satan is the master deceiver, and he brings these, these vague, uh, cloudy, shadowy feelings of, of guilt that overwhelm us from time to time. You ever just wake up in the morning and feel guilty about something, and you try to think, what did I do, and you can't think of anything? Well, that's the enemy. That's not God. God is never vague. He's always very pointed. And uh, if you or I uh, have been clinging to some sin and it's made us sick, God has already put his finger on it, and you know, and I know, what it is. If you don't know, then don't worry about it. it, it it's, not a, it's not a problem to God. Just forget it and go on. Your, your sickness is probably the result of sin in general in the world and, and not at all attributable to any specific sin. But if you know... If there's something you know you should be doing and you're not doing it, or there's something you shouldn't be doing and you're doing it, and you've been defending it and uh, justifying it and uh, uh, clinging to it despite what God's Word is, say to, is saying to you, then you need to judge the sin and put it away. And perhaps it may be such a, ha- such a strong habit and so difficult to put away that you'll need help. You'll need to call someone one of the, the leaders of the church, one of the elders to come, or a number of the elders to come and lay hands on you and pray for you, that you'll be forgiven and, and, and set free. The, uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, as you know, has based their view of auricular confession on this particular passage. Uh, if, uh, if you have committed what they consider to be mortal sin, one of the deadly sins, uh, you are to confess your sins to the priest. But uh, James is not talking about confession to a priest here. If you notice, he says, therefore, confess your faults to one another. As Luther uh, put it, strange priest, he said, whose name is one another. Uh, he's, James is rather talking about the, the practice of, of sharing your, your burdens and your concerns and your failures with another brother or sister in Christ. And... Uh, and Asking, seeking their encouragement and their prayer. It, it seems to me that what James is saying here is that uh, a congregation that has that sort of openness, we're not trying to cover up our sin, but we want to deal with it. And so we go to another brother or a sister, someone who, that we have confidence in, so, someone that we know loves us and and we'll pray for us, and we'll, we'll keep this thing uh, quiet and, disc- and discreet. We go to them, and we tell them our needs. We open our hearts to them, and they pray for us. And James says, in that, in that climate of openness and caring 
uh, concern. Uh, you'll be healed, he said, and you will continue on in a state of healing. Now, he doesn't mean that you'll never get sick, but sickness that is the result of sin will never overwhelm you. Now, it seems to me there's another issue that we have to address in this passage, and it has to do with, with healing in general. Uh, there is, a, I think, a great deal of misunderstanding on this, on this issue. Some people are teaching today that uh, it is God's will uh, for you to be healed of every, uh, every sickness. There is no reason for you ever to be, uh, for you ever to be sick. If you are, the problem is a lack of faith. And there's a great deal of guilt, I think, it's imposed upon people because they're told that the problem is that you don't have enough faith. And uh, you start thinking, well, I'm, I'm sick because my faith isn't ferocious enough. Somehow I've got to believe more. And uh, if possible, I want to I help you. Uh, I want to set you free from what I think is a, uh, is a delusion. It is God's will that we be healed. Uh, we might ask the question, does God heal? Yes, absolutely. No question about it. And there are many of you here that, that could point to specific examples of God's miraculous healing in your life. But is it God's will that he always heal us, that we always be healed? No, no, not in this life. It is God's intention, ultimately, to heal all of us. There is healing in the atonement. I used to discuss this, uh, this issue with, with people in churches who, who would say that healing is in the atonement. And I would say, no, no, there's no healing in the atonement. Um, they, they, were, they were referring to Isaiah 53 and uh, the prophetic description of our Lord who is said to carry away our illnesses, our sicknesses, our weaknesses. And I've always pointed to Peter Peter's uh, interpretation of Isaiah 53 in his little epistle where he points out that we were straight. He quotes that passage in Isaiah 53. By his stripes you are healed. And he describes all of us as sheep that have wandered away from a shepherd but have re returned to the bishop and uh, shepherd of their souls. And I would say, see, he's talking about spiritual healing. But uh, I found a passage in Matthew where, uh, where Matthew, the, the apostle, takes Isaiah 53 and applies it to Jesus' acts of healing. In Matthew 8, Jesus healed the sick and he raised the dead and he opened the eyes of the blind and he opened the ears of the deaf. And Matthew said, see, this is what Isaiah said. And he quotes that passage in Isaiah 53 and it just blew my theology right out of the water until I came to realize that there is healing in the atonement. There is. There is also sinless perfection in the atonement. There is also a promise of peace to this war-ridden world in the atonement. And a reversal of the effects of, of sin and moral perfection in the atonement. It's all there. But it's not all there now. It's coming. That's our hope. But we don't have it yet. Now, what's promised to us now is substantial healing, as Schaefer puts it. We can see moral progress. We, we, we'll see ourselves growing in grace and, and becoming more and more like Christ, but we won't ever become perfect, not in this life, but in the age to come. We can see our, uh, that there will be times when God will heal us physically from some uh, 
some physical ailment, or heal us emotionally. But there is no final and ultimate and absolute healing until we see the Lord. John puts it this way. He says, Beloved, and if he were standing up here, he'd say this, he'd say this to you. You're all sons of God. All of you. But you don't look like sons of God. You don't always act like sons of God. Sons of God ought to, to be perfect in character. Sons of God ought to have bodies like our Lord Jesus' body that was glorious and, and untouched by, by sickness. He never, uh, as far as we know, he, he, he was never sick at all. And certainly in his resurrection body, he has a perfect body. And so John would say, now you're sons of God, but you don't look that way yet. Nevertheless, when we see him, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And that's the hope that we have. We live in hope. Now, it may well be that God will not heal your body physically because uh, he may have some other mode of healing to perform. As, as Paul uh, observed in, in 2 Corinthians 12, God did not uh, correct the thorn in the flesh. He didn't take away the thorn because he had a greater thing to do, and that is uh, to teach Paul that in his weakness he would, he would discover God's strength. And perhaps that's what God is teaching you through, the, through your affliction. And he doesn't promise perfect mental health either. You may struggle off and on with emotional problems. He doesn't, he doesn't promise uh, 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 moral perfection. You may fail in some area, and there may be some habit that you struggle with over a long period of time. But the time is coming when our Lord Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to set everything right, and we'll have the healing that's promised in the atonement. Uh, all of you, I'm sure, are beginning to collect a few toys under the uh, Christmas tree, toys for small boys and big boys, too, and you're all anxious to break into those packages and and you see them under the, under the tree, and they have your name on them, and, and you know that uh, December the 25th, they're yours, but you, you can't, can't get into them yet. You have to wait. And that's what Scripture teaches us. It's all coming. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He doesn't, he doesn't plan to withhold anything from us. But we don't have it yet. We have to wait until he comes. And then we'll come into our own. We'll have our redeemed bodies. We'll have a re redeemed uh, environment, universe. And uh, everything that we've longed for, all the hopes and dreams of all the years, will come true. It's a sure thing. That's our hope. I've been reading, uh, I read a couple of weeks ago, a, a paper by the uh head of the uh, psychiatry department of the Harvard Medical School. His name is Arben Mayo Nicol Nikolai. It's a paper on depression. <clears throat> he's, a, he's a Christian. And he concluded his paper this way. Do Christians suffer less adversity and pain than others? There is much evidence that he suffers just as much. Does he, however, have more resources to cope with the pain? There is a great deal of evidence that he has, and by no means the least of these resources is hope. The scriptures speak eloquently. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Would you take a take a moment to to fix your hope on our Lord? Would you ask him to um, to take your eyes away from the the things that we hope in now that that really are not stable and reliable and and don't last don't provide what what it is that our hearts long for and if there is anyone here who has been harboring sin would you would you judge that sin and and by by Christ's strength, put it away and determine this morning to to make whatever take whatever steps are necessary to amend the evil that you've done and set things right. Father, we uh, thank you so much for these studies in this in this book, for this reminder uh, that that this truth is designed to keep us from going astray. And not only can we apply it to ourselves, but we can use it as a, a loving and gentle corrective to others that might have wandered away and need the same kind of redemptive treatment that we need. We uh, ask that, that you'd use this truth in our lives and that we would use this this word from you in the lives of others. Help us to see that that out of all of the news that we that we receive day after day, this is the good news. And help us to keep our expectations realistic. To to know that that we cannot receive all that we long for in this life. Never will, because of the fallenness of our race. But that one of these days, and we trust soon, you're you're coming back. To, to set this old world right and, and set our lives right and give us all that, that we long for as your children. And Lord, deliver us from the tendency to, to apply these, these truths solely to our own lives and not see that there are, are people around us who have no hope, who really have nothing to live for beyond today. You make us bold and forthright and loving in our proclamation of this delivering truth. We thank you for this time together, for these, for this time in looking through your word. We ask that your spirit would make this truth real in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.